You are listening to the Capital District Civil War Roundtable Podcast, a podcast covering all things civil war. Please subscribe by going to our website, www.capitaldistrictcivilwar.org. Thank you for listening to the Capital District Civil War Roundtable podcast. My name is Nick Tony. I'm your host. And today we're recording from the Albany Distilling Company here in downtown Albany on Livingston Avenue. And my guest is Mark Will Weber. Mark is the author of Muskets and Applejack, Spirits, Soldiers in the Civil War. Mark has also written a book called Mint Juleps with Teddy Roosevelt, uh, The Complete History of Presidential Drinking. Mark, cheers and thank you for joining me. It's great to be here, Nick. Uh, Mark, uh, obviously, uh, the titles of your book sort of give away why we're here at Albany Distilling Company. Um, it's, they're books about drinking um, and alcohol. Uh, the first book we're going to talk about, Musket, Muskets and Applejack, sort of. The great thing about this book is obviously these are all stories that have to do with alcohol, but they're all stories that have to do with real people. Um, and uh, I imagine your, research, your re- research is based off of diaries and um, some of the lesser covered aspects of the fighting and, 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 and soldiers in camp and getting drunk. Um, to start off with, um, as we both have drinks in our hand, I have a, <laughs> a, a, a Brooklyn bourbon drink. Uh, what do you have? Uh, I, I have a Manhattan that tastes very, very good. These are very refreshing. It's about, I think it's about 92 degrees outside right now. So these are uh, particularly refreshing today. Um, now, what would your typical soldier drink during the Civil War? I mean, you t- there's many different alcohols in your book um, from stuff that you and I would probably, you couldn't pay us money to drink it to stuff that was very nice. Can you sort of talk about the range of alcohol? Well, yes. I mean, and, and a lot of it has to do with if you were an officer or not. And if you were a really high up officer, like a colonel or a general, you might, you might get imported wines from Europe you know, these clarets and uh, Madeiras and really high-priced champagnes. And now the enlisted guy was drinking whatever he could get a hold of, as you might imagine. And uh, they had some very colorful names for it, you know, OB Joyful, um, uh, Rot Gut, uh, a a number of colorful names. My favorite was Dead at the Counter, (laughs) which kind of meant as soon as you had it, you you were in danger. of uh, keeling over that so it was questionable stuff uh the worst thing that i found and i want to get this in now before i forget about it was uh a uh southern concoction called uh pine top whiskey and it was basically from what i could gather is they would boil uh pine needles in a big pot and get and and then drain it and they would have a resin a pine resin at the bottom and then they would add uh, add grain alcohol to it and they would drink it so it was sort of this piney uh very powerful white lightning really and i think if if you go into your kitchen right now and drink some sort of pine uh cleaning fluid beneath your sink that would probably approximate how bad uh it tastes uh, tasted this pine top whiskey, and I, I it's funny because almost regardless of Union or Confederate diary, it was almost always accompanied by the word vile. That vile <laughs> right, right. Uh, pine top whiskey. That was Mosby's men, right? That uh, were drinking. Mosby's that. men drank it, and so there's there's something ironic about that is because Mosby himself did not sure. drink uh, because he had a traumatic experience as a young boy. He saw his schoolmaster drunk in the ditch. And uh, it, it turned him off from alcohol. And he has that in common with several other Southern generals that didn't drink at all, Jeb Stewart and uh, Stonewall Jackson. And, and Lee rarely uh, partook, or is that uh, inaccurate? Uh, Lee drank so so minimally right. uh, th- that you could say, uh, I don't think you could call him a teetotaler because he did drink occasionally, but so minimally to, to be almost non-existent. In fact... Uh, one of Grant's biographers, uh, uh, Gene, I'm not, Gene Smith, uh, had a, a great opening paragraph in a, an article I read that he, he wrote about Grant. And he, he begins it not 
of talking about Grant, but he, he says that Robert E. Lee was given two very nice bottles of whiskey at the start of the war, more for medicinal purposes, and he put them in his saddlebag, and they were top-notch whiskey, the best that could be found, as you might imagine. And they said at the end of the war that maybe uh, a little over half of one bottle was gone and the other hadn't been touched at all. Wow. And uh, Smith goes on to say that never would have happened with Grant. Course, yeah. And that's how he gets into his, uh, his article about uh, Grant battling demons of alcohol. We'll, um, we'll get to Grant because Grant is such an interesting character. Um, Jeb Stewart, as you mentioned, was a, I think, fair to say, a teetotaler. He he'd promised his mother that he wouldn't drink, I think, uh, right. uh, as, as a child um, or maybe a little bit later on in his life. Uh, but when he's lying there wounded uh, at Yellow Tavern, I think he has to be coaxed to take a drink. He finally does, but he's not happy about it. The same thing with, with uh, Stonewall Jackson. Right. You know, and uh, Jackson was such a strict Presbyterian uh, a religious guy he prayed almost daily and uh he was against alcohol as well but in both cases with stewart and, and jackson i mean in jackson's case the surgeon was pretty sure they were gonna have to cut his arm off and uh they persuaded him that <clears throat> it was going to be necessary for some some pain killing uh, the interesting thing that you include in your book about jackson and i think most of us or at least i had a not a perception. Obviously, he was a he was a zealot and he very religious man, Jackson, and sort of his uh, his ability not to drink sort of came from that sort of uh, the zeal to just be moral. But he did. There's a quote that he was. It's not that he didn't like the taste of whiskey. It's that it, he liked it a little too much and yes. knew it was a problem. He 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 did admit to a fellow officer who, at one point, said to him, "Hey, what's the harm? You know, it's 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 we were out in." cold and clement weather today and it might might even be good for you general and he admitted to him that he perhaps would would like it too much if he engaged and so he purposely uh avoided it as as best that he could right so we have uh those confederate uh generals who uh either completely abstain or mostly abstain on the union side as far as prominent generals uh gosh we have grant we have um, uh, Sheridan, uh, Sherman, uh, a number. Sickles. Uh, Sickles. <laughs> Sickles, an interesting yeah. character. Oh, uh, Bizarre uh, guy. Uh, so, you know, let's start with Sickles. Um, Sickles, uh, who was uh, a party <laughs> a party guy, not just a Democratic Party guy, but a guy who knew how to, how to have a good time. He was in Halleck's camp, one of uh, Halleck's aides. Um, not Halleck, uh, I'm sorry, Hooker. Uh, and um, something he said, I believe, after the war about the origins of the war. Yeah, and, and I thought that was fascinating. And it, when, you, when you do a book like this, um, it's, you're going to spend maybe the better part of two years of your life on a certain subject. So <clears throat> you have to be interested to begin with, and I certainly was. But every once in a while, I would find something that was, I was like, wow, I didn't know that. that that's incredible. And this quote from Sickle, I, I won't have it exactly right here, but it was something to say that whiskey uh, was the main cause of the war, that the, 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 the uh, senators and congressmen from the South in particular liked to drink so much, and then they would get bombastic and, uh, and, and insinuate that they were going to leave the Union, that kind of thing, that, that Sickles actually felt this, this constant imbibing of whiskey which led to duels. It led to, to the caning of Sumner and, and all this thing, uh, inflame the uh, <clears throat> the path to war. That it, it, it certainly perpetuated it. <clears throat> and, and so Mary Chest, Chestnut said essentially the same thing. And you and, and you use so much of her uh, own words in this book, which is interesting because we've all seen Chestnut used in a million different Civil War books. But here's a, yet another. Now you've gone through for a completely different purpose, right? And she, she her, her, uh, her quotes were alcoholized wisdom. Uh, you know, uh, really uh, ideas preserved in alcohol. But I think specifically yeah. referring to secession and, and what's going yes. on in Charleston in 1861, and the bravado that <clears throat> that uh, you know a, a Southerner could whip four or five Yankees. That kind of nonsense that uh, you know proved not to be true. Uh, but yeah, I, I loved her quotes, and you know, 
ironically, I almost didn't even bother to check her <laughs> diary, but she was such a, uh, a, a great testimonial in, in Burns' film that I felt, well, you know, maybe she said a couple things about alcohol. And, you know, once I got in there, there was probably a dozen really great quotes about alcohol, if not more. I mean, I probably could have used more of her. And she's such an interesting witness to the war uh, that I, I felt like, thank God, I, I, you know, bothered to check her diary for alcohol references. If I hadn't, I think the book would have been something considerably less. Um, let's talk about um, the first major battle of the war, uh, Bull Run. Uh, September of 1861. Um, a couple things about this battle. First, which every time I think about it and read about it, it's amazing. The spectators that were there who were watching the battle much the way that we would watch a, a baseball game or a football game. Uh, they brought picnic ba baskets from Washington, right? And, 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 yes. and, and observed it like it was a sporting event. Crazy. I mean, it, almost like, uh, you know, imagine some jousting event in ancient England, you know, in medieval England or France and and people coming to spectate. And of course, these picnic baskets had had fine wines. It was mainly the aristocratic uh, people from Washington that came out, um, you know, some congressmen and senators who weren't going to fight themselves, by the way, but wanted to see the Union Army. Uh, whipped the rebels right back to Richmond. You know, they thought the war would be over after this battle. And, uh, you know, people, again, uh, they got intoxicated. They got in, in the way of the retreat. It was it was a diabolical from all sides. And uh, I, I know I have a quote from McClellan in there somewhere that's saying when he got back to Washington, he was unnerved that they didn't have any of the, the major avenues to the city guarded. They, and half the officers were drunk in the bar because they just suffered this incredible defeat. And uh, he, he said something to the effect that a couple of troops of cavalry could have ridden into Washington, captured the Capitol, captured some of the major politicians, and put an end to the war right there. Uh, it didn't happen, and Mary Chestnut says that, you know what, I think our guys celebrated too much after they chased the Yankees off the right. battlefield, and didn't think about following it up for the knockout blow. And right, right. again, alcohol was a factor in, in that hesitancy. Another great thing, uh, well, interesting thing that plays out at Bull Run, which you then see play out through the entire war. Uh, a colonel that I wasn't familiar with going into it, uh, I had his name written down, and I, I must have removed it. But the, the point is, is that throughout the war, whenever there was a failure— Somehow, alcohol, whether it was real or not, was the reason that there was a failure. Right. It was a, a, a very convenient scapegoat. And, you know, not without reason. I mean, sometimes it, uh, you had these generals that may have been sober on the day of the battle, but, you know, if they're drunk several times that week, you know, people are going to go, hey, I wonder if he, if he was still a little clouded over um, prior to the battle. And... And one of the funniest ones, of course, was when Hooker loses at Chancellorsville. There was people who said, well, it was because Hooker had stopped drinking and he didn't he wasn't as uh, as rambunctious as he normally would have been. He was more um, reserved. And that's why he was surprised at Chancellorsville, because he, he had taken his body that was used to imbibing <laughs> right. in alcohol and, and went sober. Um, now, you mentioned McClellan. Um, uh, so very early on, uh, Bull Run is part of it, and and what transpires after Bull Run, uh, Stanton Edwin Stanton takes over as Secretary of War, and he hates this, the reality and the perception that the union the union officers instead of fighting are enjoying what's the oysters and champagne yeah, oysters and this oysters and champagne on the Potomac must stop right he right. says and of course he he never was able to stop it completely. Uh, because the officers were going to have what they wanted. Um, so let's let's shift. Uh, we talked a little bit about it before we started the podcast, but um, th there are some atrocities during the Civil War. I mean, uh, you, you pointed out not to the extent in some other wars, um, but there's the burning of... Chambersburg, uh, which is very interesting, which it doesn't happen, obviously, in 1863. It happens later as P 
payback for something that happened. So can you, Chambersburg, Columbia, can you talk about um, the role alcohol played in, I don't think alcohol created the problems, but in it's sort of making it much worse. Yes. I mean, and we all know that alcohol, for all its positive qualities, uh, it's, it's certainly a, a negative when it comes to uh, making great decisions. And I mean, you, uh, how many people would drive the speed limit, but if they've had eight drinks might drive 90, you know? Right. So uh, that factor figures in with the Civil War soldiers and they, uh, they would capture alcohol and it was sort of a thing of pride. So they loved to capture it from each other and they would brag about it. You know, we overran the Union camp and we got champagne and we got whiskey and we got this and that. So that was a factor, too. So they liked it when they had it. Now, in the case of Columbia, when Sherman's men burned Columbia, uh, the, the slaves of Columbia actually welcomed the Union Army with buckets of whiskey. And these men had been fighting and marching all day, so they were very tired, probably hadn't eaten much, if at all. And all of a sudden, they're, they're handed, you know, large buckets of whiskey. They're dipping their cups in there, their canteens, and... And pretty soon, a good portion of the army gets uh, in, intoxicated, and there's looting, and there's uh, there's the, you know parts of the city are already on fire, and it was windy, which uh, perpetuated the fire, and they, they they actually had a hard time finding sober troops to quell this riot, and and we had Union soldiers shoot other Union soldiers to stop it. Chambersburg was a bit of a, a revenge thing for the South, as you can imagine. By 1864, the wars looking bleak for the South, and they, they can rarely uh, venture into Union territory again, but they, Chambersburg's right across the border from, uh, you know, what's today West Virginia and Virginia and Maryland, sort of where it comes together there in Pennsylvania. So they rode in there, and it was really a revenge thing for all the burning that Sheridan and his uh, people had done in the Shenandoah Valley. Uh, and they would do this thing too where they would go into a town and they'd say look if you don't give us uh, x amount of gold we're going to burn your city so there was a bit of a pirate uh, mentality to it it was it was sort of a uh, you know if you pay up uh, we'll, we'll ransom your homes and right, your right. city and uh, I, I think a lot of the citizenry of chambersburg didn't believe it was going to happen or didn't have the money to pay and so, you know, a lot of it was, was fired up. Uh, some people did come up with something, and their house was spared. But uh, it's, again, when you read the diaries and the letters of these soldiers or the citizens, it's, it's, it's really uh, riveting. Uh, in, in the same vein, can you talk a little bit about Fort Pillow? I, I, think, I think it's nobody knows exactly what happened there but i think it seems pretty clear that alcohol was involved one way or the other alcohol was definitely involved um the the, the uh, confederates always maintain that the uh union soldiers on the walls of uh fort pillow which is in tennessee uh had whiskey up on the walls you know the, to give them a little dutch courage to repel uh the confederates who had asked for a surrender uh Bedford Forrest is leading the Confederate troops, and, you know, he was a, definitely a zealot. Uh, again, a guy who didn't drink himself, by the way. The only time he drank was when he was wounded and uh, had to have a bullet dug out of him. But uh, apparently, once the Confederates took over the uh, fort, they, they refused to accept any surrenders, especially from... Uh, black Union soldiers. They, they killed them immediately. And a number of soldiers who tried to swim to these Union uh, fighting boats out in the uh, Tennessee River, or the Mississippi, I forget which, I'm sorry. Uh, I think it was the Mississippi. They shot so many of them in the river that Forrest later uh, boasted that the, the river ran red for 100 meters, 100 yards. Uh, something that effect and you know Forrest is still a very controversial figure did you did you read like a month ago uh the state of Tennessee uh, had a honorary day or something for him and you know people just went ballistic because he 
he certainly is a, uh, you know, uh, allegedly went on to become a uh, leader of the KKK sure, sure. and that kind of thing. He was thing. a slave trader before the yes. war. Yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So he's, he's uh, a very controversial to figure. To say the least, yeah. Uh, as is Sherman in the South, I should sure. point out, yeah. for, for different reasons. Right. Um, so uh, we've, we've touched on the medicinal um, purposes for alcohol. It was a pain reliever. And, and if you were getting your arm cut off... You wanted some whiskey. I mean, that, yes. that, was, that was basically the only way of, 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 yes. uh, of, of alleviating some of the pain. There was uh, some of the officers had little cakes of opium. There was, oh, right, yes. But, but again, the, the common guy wouldn't have that. Now, by the end of the war, you start to see even some crude syringes, and they do have a little more opium to help with this. Uh, and, you know, unfortunately, a lot of these soldiers at the end of the war, too, went back as opium addicts uh, because of, in fact, it became called the soldier's disease in some places that there were enough, uh, it was common enough that that happened. So those were the only really two ways, you know, and, and they also used it as an incentive to do jobs that nobody wanted to do. For instance, nobody really wanted to go out and be on grave duty right. when there was a truce after this battle and you had to go out and bury hundreds of guys you can imagine the stench and dead horses and the whole bit but they would double your whiskey ration if you were on that uh job and also laying uh pontoons these temporary bridges because you were often up to your waist in swamp water that kind of thing mosquitoes buzzing around you so they would double your whiskey ration the uh miners from schuylkill county in pennsylvania that dug the tunnel under uh Petersburg, those guys got extra whiskey rations to be tunnel rats. So, in fact, the officer stopped by and Burnside was teasing him one time. He said, yeah, I know why you guys volunteered for this mission so you could double your whiskey ration. <laughs> right. Yeah. Well, And then there's the, um, uh, the promise made to, I forget which troops they were, the Burnside Bridge in, in Antietam. Yes. It was a, a regiment from New York and a regiment from Pennsylvania. And uh, the Burnside Bridge was sort of at the end of the day at Antietam. I mean, they, they started fighting basically at dawn, and, and by late afternoon, they were still trying to take the Burnside Bridge. And uh, Ferrara, the dance teacher from New York, came up to them, and he was a colonel or a general, I forget which, at that point, and said, Men, General Burnside asks that you take this bridge. Will you do it? And apparently the one unit had had their whiskey ration revoked uh, earlier in the week for, for some indiscretion. And so a corporal or a sergeant raised his hand up and said, Sir, if we take this bridge, will you restore our whiskey ration? And he promised that he would. And they took the bridge and he restored the ration, apparently. Talk about the resourcefulness of these men to obtain alcohol, especially your common soldier. I mean, they, they got... It reminds me a little bit of uh, living in a dorm when we had to sneak, uh, uh, you know, beer by our yes. RAs. We, uh, everything from golf bags yeah. to, you know, uh, they were very resor- resourceful. I, I think it was the same general that was involved with the Burnside Bridge who said, if my men were on a desert island of just rocks and, you know, a couple of scrub trees, they would still somehow find a way to find whiskey. They were that resourceful. Uh, what I loved is early in the war, and, and the officers and such got wise to it later, but the men would march out of camp, and they would fill their musket barrel with whiskey, and they'd march back in, and the officers were perplexed how these guys could get drunk because they, they had really checked over the camp right and left and couldn't find anything. But these guys would march out, get whiskey in their, their musket, uh, and march back in and pour it into another container and eventually you know half the platoon would be drunk if you had six guys doing that so that yeah musket barrel whiskey on both sides they would also carve out watermelons or pumpkins and either stash bottles in there or pour the liquid in there and then even stick like a a a detached musket barrel in there like a big straw (laughs) to suck it out they would come in with a say a wagon load of pickles for instance uh and and maybe every third jar would actually be pickles, but the other ones would be whiskey, you know. <laughs> and the, the officers were like, why are the men so intrigued about this wagon of pickles? You know, they're all of a sudden, they're half the regiments over there trying to get pickles. 
or uh, you know, so I you find some really amusing things like that where they they just are so resourceful to get to get booze, you know. And, and it was a constant problem for leadership uh, from the start of the war. Uh, there are countless stories, it seems, in the book where um, commanders are going into the town before their troops get there and and demanding that the um, that the citizens don't sell the alcohol to uh, their troops. And in some cases, just not even taking that chance and just dumping it all out. Right. And and uh, it depended on the officer. I mean, Lee, as you might imagine. So when Lee went into Chambersburg on the way up to Gettysburg, he had his Texas unit go in and smash all these whis- whiskey barrels, which they, you know, you can imagine they were probably close to tears as they had to do it. Where General Rhodes, who already had about 10,000 men up in Carlisle, uh, those guys ended up basically getting trashed just two or three days before Gettysburg, including all the officers. Rhodes himself, who wasn't normally a big drinker, but they stumbled on this uh, keg of lager, German lager, but they hadn't realized the lager had been brewed in a whiskey barrel. Uh, yeah. So it still had remnants of the whiskey. Mm-hmm. It was quite more potent sure. than they, they had uh, sound delicious, perceived. <laughs> yes, it does. <laughs> and uh, I, I'm actually, I want to find a distiller, a, a brewer, a microbrewery that would like to recreate General Rhodes's whiskey barrel that's, that's lager. Like a great idea. Isn't it? Yeah. yeah. But um, yeah, so they, that, that would happen. And um, it depended on the generals and some were more thorough than others. And there were some general generals that were total teetotalers, as, as we said. Jackson, sure. Jackson was very vehement yep. when he captured that Union train that time he... He had them pour out all the whiskey. He said, I fear this whiskey more than I do the Union troops. So let's go to um, Lincoln's assassination. And I think most of us are familiar with Booth dropping into the bar before uh, the assassination. Um, But there's a couple other lesser known aspects. Um, Basically, I mean, it was a conspiracy. We all know that, too. But basically, everyone in the conspiracy was drunk and then including lincoln's might not he might not have been drunk but the bodyguard was not where he should have been right can you imagine the bodyguard a man by the name of parker who was supposed to be sitting outside lincoln's booth uh in between acts of the play uh what's called my american cousin something like that decides well you know i think i'll go across the street and have a mug of ale before the second act starts and he does he goes across there and it's quite possible that he and booth crossed paths that booth was done drinking his whiskey to get his courage up to go shoot lincoln scurries out and i mean it it is not a stretch to think you know maybe somebody get to parker and say listen come over and have a beer (laughs) across the street and who knows but but Lincoln's normal Secret Service guy was distraught about that. He said, if I'd have been there, you know, I never would have left my post and Lincoln would maybe still be alive today. And it it certainly changed history there where alcohol had a big role in Lincoln's death, even though, ironically, Lincoln is probably uh, the president who drank the least, uh, at least until the current occupant of the White House. Right, right. Um, Yeah, that's uh, that's interesting. So Lincoln... He, he didn't seem to have a problem with anybody else drinking around him, or at least um, uh, he. there's the quote that uh, you point out that uh, even though we all like it might not be true about Grant yeah. and, the, and you know, somebody, um, as happened often in Grant's career, accused Grant of being a you know, drunk and right. alcoholic. Um, two different things. As, as, uh, drunk and alcoholic are... Uh, I think drunk assumes one thing, and, yeah. and, and Grant was more along the lines of a, of a binge drinker. We'll talk a little bit about yes. that. But, but, but Lincoln um, didn't partake, and his son said, you know, maybe he saw him sip wine twice. And right. That's just to basically wet his lips. Yes, there, there's a tiny bit of evidence that he occasionally, when he went to the telegraph office during the war, the men there would drink uh, what they called... Um, uh, basically, it was a near beer, small beer, they called it. Okay, yeah. And small beer was about 2 or 3% alcohol. So, in fact, they would give it to kids because it was that, you know, benign. Right, right. And they, there is some evidence that occasionally, as Lincoln was waiting for telegraphs to come in, he might have had a sip or two of this. He had a great 
sense of humor about alcohol, though. And Lincoln was a great storyteller, as we know, and he loved to tell stories that involved alcohol. And uh, he did that quite frequently. And weirdly, people were always trying to send Lincoln alcohol. So he, he accumulated this entire room at the White House. It was filled up with booze from all over the world. Uh, very expensive wines and champagnes and brandies. You name it, they had it. And eventually they took it to the soldier's hospital to use uh, for, you know, amputations and extracting bullets and that kind of stuff. The uh, the story about, so in 1858, Lincoln, the famous Lincoln-Douglas debates. and I love this story. I, I, <laughs> this is one of my favorite stories. Where, well, you could tell it better than I can. But Lincoln was a grocer, and he and he sold. Right. He sold. Well, Lincoln, you know, it's funny because you know, if you go to the liquor store, you'll see Knob Creek whiskey there. And Lincoln, as a young man, worked in a still, apparently on Knob Creek, and helped make whiskey. Uh, probably as a, you know, a, a young teenager even. And then, yes, later in life, he was a partner in a, a grocery now, grocery on those states that were sort of on the fringe of the frontier yet, uh, often had uh, whiskey on hand where people would come in, fill their jug up, pay a price. They may come in and buy horseshoes and nails and that kind of thing as well. But a lot of it was the sale of whiskey. Now, his partner happened to love whiskey and drank up a lot of their profits, and I think the store eventually failed because of that, which may explain some of Lincoln's uh, abstention. Although I think Lincoln also had bouts of melancholy and he probably wisely uh, figured that the alcohol might make that worse, which it probably would have. So there's a lot of things going on with why Lincoln doesn't drink. But Douglas would often accuse Lincoln. He'd say, Mr. Lincoln, you worked in a whiskey still as a young man and you sold whiskey at your grocery and Lincoln said, well, yes, Mr. Douglas, I did, and you were one of our best customers. <laughs> right. And I, serve quit my side of the of the uh, counter, and you haven't. Right. Yeah, Douglas, who is no stranger to oh. drinking whiskey in large yes. quantities of it. Yes, for, Douglas yeah. was—and that's, that's talk about a, uh, you know, a, a, a flip-the-issue a flip attack. I mean, Douglas loved whiskey and drank it a lot, and poor Lincoln, who didn't imbibe at all, gets accused— Right. By Douglas, of all people, of being a drinker. Um, let's, uh, well, gosh, there's so many things. Uh, let's go to Andrew Johnson, who is an interesting character, and I think most people would be familiar with the second Lincoln's second inauguration where he makes a fool of himself. Yes. Um, so there's some question. He definitely could partake and get drunk. Uh, there's some question about whether it was a frequent thing, uh, but anyway, tell us a little bit about Johnson and his use well, of Well, yeah, Johnson, I mean, he, uh, in his defense, Lincoln uh, wanted him to come to the second inaugural, and, and Johnson said he hadn't been feeling well. He was fighting off uh, uh, some bouts of fever or something, and Lincoln insisted that he come. And Johnson apparently, as was the... The, the want of the day was treating himself with alcohol to combat his illness, but then arrived and there was a big party and he, he drank more, woke up the next day with, as you might imagine, a killer hangover. And someone suggested to him that the hair of the dog theory that he should drink, have a drink or two again to alleviate it. And so he arrives at his inaugural uh, completely drunk, gets on stage and, makes these uh, accusations to people in the crowd, you know, he's not even making sense, he's slurring his words, and people are stunned, you know, and it's, uh, and they said Lincoln, as tall as he was, was trying to slink down in his seat, right. it was that embarrassing. <laughs> I like the idea that it might have been Hannibal Hamlin who was helping him get drunk, who, right, the former who was the vice, outgoing vice the president. The outgoing VP was probably... You know, he's accused of being the one that suggested, hey, I think maybe a, a drink or two will help you. So, uh, and Johnson was a very controversial figure and very combative. And, uh, you know, this, this uh, thing with alcohol continues to dog him. He, you know, he's impeached by the Congress, but 
the Senate won't approve it, so he escapes uh, oust, his ousting as president later after Lincoln's assassination. There's a lot of people that claim he was drunk the night Lincoln was shot. Uh, you know, there's some evidence of that. People showed up to the next day, and he was in, in terrible shape, and they had to get him dressed up and clean him up. So mm-hmm. who, who knows if that's right. true or not, because wow. a lot of people didn't like him. Wells uh, certainly wrote wrote about that. Gideon Wells, the right. the Navy Secretary, um, that he wasn't uh, very impressed by him or worried about his his drunkenness. And I think Lincoln, sort of, while he was still alive, sort of, he's a loyal guy. He's basically um, he's a decent guy. That was a one off kind of thing. Um, and interesting about Johnson, both of his kids had issues. Um, yes. w- one who commit suicide, I believe. Right. Um, and that's what you get in this president's book, Mint Juleps with Teddy Roosevelt. Mm-hmm. Um, let's talk about Grant, who obviously is in both books. Um, right. Interesting character. And your assessment, which we already touched on, which is uh, similar to one that came out after your book, I believe, when Chernow is basically Grant was an alcoholic. He was a binge drinker. Yes. Um, he could go weeks or months at a time without it. Right. But he, especially during the war, could disappear for what we would call a bender. They might call a frolic back in the day, yes. which is very interesting. Um, just talk a little bit about Grant's um, use of alcohol. And he's yeah. somebody that you uh, labeled, uh, I believe, a bad drinker. Yes. You know, when I was first working on the president's book, you know, people would often say to me, "Go, oh, Grant was a big drinker, right? And I would say, well, Grant was actually a bad drinker. He had very low tolerance, which when you look at the guy in the 50, you see this burly looking guy and you sure. would think that he could drink a lot. But by, by many um, first person assessments, one drink and Grant's face would be flushed. And if he had two drinks, he was off to the races and uh, didn't handle it well. You know, he, And then he would just continue to drink. He was very much uh, a, what I would call an episodal alcoholic uh I, I i've had people say to me oh you were really rough on grant in your president's book and i actually hold grant in esteem because i think he knew he had this problem yes. and nine times out of ten he was able to hold it at bay he his uh when he went off the rails it was often that he was lonely he was without his wife his wife was one of the Julia was one of the few people that could prevent him from drinking. The next best person was Rollins, his uh, this general under him, whose really main job was to prevent Grant from getting alcohol. And he was quite good at it, but he wasn't always successful because there was always these guys that wanted to drink with Grant. So uh, Grant, when he got lonely or perhaps in the aftermath of these battles where he'd ordered troops in, think of Cold Harbor, some of these sure, places yeah. where they get carved up pretty badly, you might want a drink or two. Uh, there are, there, there's people that defend Grant, said, oh, you know, that's Grant, Grant wasn't, wasn't an alcoholic, and they, they get very um, up in arms about it, but I think the best evidence is this one letter that Rollins writes to his fiance, and Rollins, at least at that time, I don't want to say worshipped Grant, because he could be tough on Grant, but he knew that Grant was important to the Union chances of victory. But he writes home to his uh, fiance and says, this incident in New Orleans, uh, I thought Grant would have learned his lesson. And by that he meant they had a victory parade in New Orleans not long uh, after the Vicksburg victory. Vicksburg was, as you know, basically the same time as Gettysburg. Yes. July, uh, 4th of July, 1863. Yes, and and the one that frankly made Grant's, cemented Grant's path to the top with Lincoln. But in September, uh, the Union that had held New Orleans from 1862, very early on, decides to have a big victory parade in New Orleans to celebrate, you know, the fact that they now own the whole Mississippi. And Grant over imbibes. And he's on a horse. Grant was normally sober, a great horseman, and he gets thrown from this horse. Now, they said, oh, it was a strange horse, and he got spooked by a train whistle or whatever. They made, they made all these allowances. But Rollins's letter to me is the, the best proof that, you know, Grant occasionally 
had these bad incidents with alcohol. And this one in particular, he was out of action for three to four weeks. That's His leg got pinned under the horse, and, uh, you know, he was out of commission, basically. So in that effect, he probably did, at least for that time period, put the Union war effort in some sort of jeopardy if, if we value his leadership as much as we seem to today. Some, uh, some of the actions that he took before the war, I think— illuminate this same idea that it's sort of a a, a sad figure who's constantly battling this his whole life he knows that there's this problem that he has he's not just a drinker going about drinking like there's no issue he i think you write he joined a temperance lodge at one point um almost like he you know there's there's a demon here that i need to fight yes um he is constantly sensitive like another president that we'll get to about Especially when he's president, how much he people see him drink. Right. He doesn't want to appear to be taking he's, more than a sip of wine, if yes. even a sip of wine. He's very secretive yes. about his drinking uh, when he becomes president. He's drinking a much better grade of alcohol by this point. Right. He's, he's got imported brandies. He's, yep. uh, you know, he's not drinking rot gut whiskey anymore. He's drinking really good stuff. One of my favorite stories is... Uh, this newspaper reporter actually from the Ithaca area. He's a, he owns a newspaper. He's a prominent guy. His name escapes me. But he comes down to visit Grant, and he plays poker with Grant and his cronies. And he wakes up the next day, and Grant has appointed him the ambassador to Greece. <laughs> you know, just out of the blue. Right, right. And uh, another contemporary wrote, uh, you know, is that a prerequisite that you have to play poker and, and get fuddled with Grant to become an ambassador? You know, so. Right, right. You know he get, he's likely removed. I think I think we've nailed it down. Actually, he's removed from his post in the Pacific yes. before the war, something to do with him being drunk. Yep. Um, and uh, is is from there constantly fighting this battle in his life that he is not um, a drunkard. Right. Um, so it, it's just uh, you know all the while knowing that th- there is a problem. Yes, yeah. it's, and I think it's incredible. And, and as I said, I, I actually hold Grant in higher esteem for on most days, not all the time, but nine times out of ten, he's able to keep the demon at bay, and right. occasionally right. he cannot. Uh, but, and I think most historians would agree with this, we know that Grant uh, was never drunk at a battle. And right, right. So on. There's no evidence, strong evidence of that. Um, let's talk a little bit about, um, gosh, there's a, uh, Hayes, Hayes, who was a civil war, uh, uh, soldier, a general, I believe he, you know, so, so another thing that plays out in your civil war book, muskets and Applejack and, uh, mint juleps with Teddy Roosevelt is how, how alcohol as a political thing increases. So, in 1861, Lincoln is dealing with the temperance uh, movement, but he can largely ignore it if the voting block isn't there and swaying elections. But by the time Hayes is coming into office, and certainly after that, these you can't ignore the temperance movement anymore. Um, and so if you could talk a little bit about that and then maybe touch on Hay- Hayes was mostly an abstainer. His, his wife had a great nickname. Yeah. Well, it's very, very... Interesting and, and and actually, Nick, you're you're one of the few people that sort of realizes that that temperance thing was coming from a long way out. It was building momentum, and it it finally hits its pinnacle when women get the right to vote. That's right. what pushes it over the top. But uh, all through the the late century, it begins to build. And actually, the aftermath of the Civil War had a role in that because these guys came home. A lot of them were addicted to alcohol or opium or both. And, uh, you know, they go out, blow their whole paycheck. The family wouldn't get any money. And so the women's suffrage uh, movement and, and temperance movement sort of uh, coincided, you know, with, with a reaction to that, the aftermath of that. But from the longest time, it, it, it began to build. Uh, and it, it gets more and more momentum. Now... Hayes's wife was an abstainer, Lemonade Lucy, and she became the darling of uh, of the women's temperance movement. And so she infringed on her husband to not have alcohol in the White House, 
Hayes had drank moderately during the Civil War. We know that from his diary and his letters and such. And uh, he went along with it, probably a little reluctantly, but uh, the poor journalists that had to go there hated to cover the White House because they couldn't get a drink, you know, right. if they were there. And they conspired at one point to pour some rum into the punch bowl there so that they, they could uh, imbibe a little bit. Uh, so you had that going on. And my, one of my favorite stories is a month into their term, the Hayes' term, these young Russian counts or dukes show up at the White House and, and the Secretary of uh, State, I believe, uh, compels the Hayes to at least have some wine or something there. He says, you know, these Europeans aren't going to understand that there's no alcohol. You have to. So they reluctantly agree. And apparently the Russian dukes got completely drunk and did something unseemly. I don't know exactly what. Uh, but after that, it was there was no more alcohol in the, in the White House uh, unless you could sneak it in. Well, and I think it was Hayes's White House, but there's a great quote in the book about somebody who had just returned from the White House, and they're like, gosh, somebody please get me a drink. Yeah. <laughs> I he was said, over there. He, he, uh, he quoted Shakespeare, right? right. Instead yes. of a, Richard III, my, my kingdom for a horse, you know, he, he said my, my kingdom for a glass of right, whiskey right. or something of that effect. Um, now, there were uh, a, a few beer drinkers in the White House. Um, the, uh, James Garfield was one of them. Not, probably not a, a, frink, a frequent drinker or an alcoholic or anything like that, but he, uh, the short time he did spend in the White House, he would go out for a beer. Yes. Um, a lot of the Ohio presidents uh, at least dabbled in beer at one point, because right. especially anyone, any of them that visited Cincinnati, whether it was McKinley or Taft or any of them, they would go to a, a section in Cincinnati called Over the Rhine, where there were all these German uh German, uh, what would you call them? Beer, beer houses, oh, yeah, beer, garden, know, beer, yeah. beer gardens, yeah. mm-hmm. and the same in Buffalo, which had a big, uh, you know, up the road, McKinley, sure. uh, and and uh, Cleveland. Uh, uh, when Cleveland was up those. there, he was yes. there all the time, yeah. and mm-hmm. McKinley was up there for the World's Fair. But right, right, uh, yeah. but yeah, you're right. It was uh, it, it, they they were often at these German beer gardens in Buffalo as well. Uh, Cleveland, the, the story you have in your book, Cleveland was running against a friend for district attorney up in Buffalo, and they had a wager. Uh, yeah. I, it, it, I love this story where they, they realized that it would look uh, unseemly for them to be out drinking every night, so they decided to limit themselves to, like, four beers a day or something, you know, which doesn't sound like much of a hardship to me. But <laughs> right. after a week of this, they, they realized it just – wasn't getting the job done and rather than go back on the four beer uh rule they just doubled the size of the beer stein so they went from 12 to 24 ounces times four so it became more uh, doable right um so some of the heavyweight drinkers meaning uh those who could drink and drink and not show many signs of intoxication um john adams John Adams, very, very accomplished, a black belt in drinking. Right. Um, Martin Van Buren with local ties. Which is really surprising because, as we know, that Van Buren was one of our smallest presidents. Maybe only James Madison was smaller. And yet Van Buren, they brag about his capacity that he was able to to, uh, indulge in a lot of alcohol and still make relative sense. Perhaps only Buchanan from Pennsylvania was a better drinker, but Buchanan was 6'2 or something. Guy. He was a yeah. big guy. He yeah. should have been able to imbibe. But the little magician uh, from Kinderhook. Uh, Born in a tavern. Yes. Born in a tavern. Born in a tavern. Yeah. Uh, was an incredible drinker. And and one of my my mysteries when I was doing the president's book, I kept coming across these references to Van Buren drinking something called Shitem. And I'm thinking, what is Shitem? I have no idea what Shitem is. I I know a lot about alcohol. I've never heard of Scheidem. And here, Scheidem is actually this city in Holland that produced so much gin that they, in Van Buren's day, they almost interchangeably used that word for gin. So they would say, hey, you're having some Scheidem uh, because it, this place made so much of it and shipped it to England. And the English shipped it here. The Dutch probably shipped it here as well. But that was one of Van Buren's favorite drinks was this Dutch gin. Uh, 
and he was apparently he could drink quite a volume of it. And he got he acquired the the nickname uh, Blue Whiskey Van, which I I, I don't know whether that's uh, you know deserved or not. Um, weirdly, when Harrison ran against him, they tried to to paint Van Buren as the champagne sipping aristocrat and. And Harrison, you know, was the hard cider log cabin campaign. They, they were more the, they tried to uh, position themselves as the working class uh, stiff, the frontiersmen, that kind of thing, right. versus the aristocrats. And Harrison, uh, realistically, was from a slave aristocratic family in yes. Virginia. And yes. Van His... Buren was born in a tavern in right. Kinderhook, New York. Yes, but uh, somehow, again, you see the whole political yeah. uh, schmear campaign well yep. at yep. work in mm-hmm. the last uh, two centuries. There's so. no doubt about it. Yeah. Um, uh, Another one, uh, well, Millard Fillmore, not a big drinker, correct? No. Uh, um, it, who was, his second marriage took place here in Albany at Schuyler Mansion, not far from where we're at. Um, a big drinker and a very, maybe one of the saddest stories uh, of a president is Franklin Pierce. Franklin Pierce, and he, he has a lot in common with Grant, I think, in that way, uh, in that Pierce and Grant uh, were both in the Mexican-American War. We're pretty sure that young Grant at that time, he was a young lieutenant, I think, and he would have been quite a bit younger than Pyrrhus, but was acquiring bad habits there, drinking, uh, chewing tobacco, which, of course, probably uh, figured in his uh, mouth cancer that killed him eventually. Uh, But um, Franklin Pyrrhus had actually uh, taken the temperance pledge because like Grant, he knew he had a problem, and he had taken the temperance pledge prior to the war and had done pretty well, apparently, if we, if history serves us right. But then when he's down there in the war with all these other officers, he's in something called the Aztec Club, which was basically a drinking club, and he begins to drink again. And like Grant, once he begins, he, he can't stop, you know, and he, he ends up dying of cirrhosis of the liver. Mm. But I, I always uh, try to stick up for Pierce a little bit in that he had a very sad life and that none of his children, uh, he had a couple kids that didn't live beyond the age of two or were born dead or died in childbirth, that kind of thing. And then finally they have a, a son that lives, Benny, and they dote on this kid and he's, I, I think, maybe 10 or 12 or something at the time of his death, but they're in a horrific train wreck and... A lot of people are injured, but the only person that dies is Pyrrhus's kid. You know, he gets thrown from the train. And uh, this is in between the time where Pyrrhus has been elected, but he hasn't uh, been inaugurated yet. So Pyrrhus has to scramble down the snowbank and bring up his the body of his dead son. And, and then his wife was a bit of a religious zealot, mm-hmm. and she got it in her head that God was punishing the Pierces because her husband had the hubris to accept the presidency. And so she spent most of his term as a recluse up in the bedroom writing letters to the dead son. Mm. So if you can imagine, if that doesn't want to make you drink, I I don't know what would. And then after his presidency and during the war, um, since Pierce had been largely sympathetic to the South, uh, he was seen as a traitor and uh, yeah. basically a man yeah. without a country you know yeah. at that point he was branded a doe face yeah. a doe face was a a, a yankee uh, uh person who was sympathetic to the south to a fault i don't know if that was actually true i think what happened with Pierce, and it, it you can see it happening in washington today there's certain senators and congressmen that become quite friendly with uh you know, people in the opposition. Mm-hmm. And I think that was Pierce's case. He was friendly with some of these Southerners, maybe he had served in the war with some of them, you know, right, right. and and was, you know, sympathetic to this whole idea of states' rights more than other people who, sure. who saw yeah. the Union. Mm-hmm. You know, we forget that back in that day, you know, this, the, the uh, state sometimes carried more uh, clout than, than the Union, the idea of this one country, the state, the state, sort of had its own power. I mean, it certainly did over Lee, who reluctantly right, right. sided with Virginia when they succeeded. And, and certainly a number of um, people, including presidents, Fillmore among them, uh, Fillmore who uh, would say later in life that he was an abolitionist, but 
He believed that the Constitution tied his hands on the matter, and therefore that's why he backed the Compromise of 1850. So, right. you know, I mean, those were the those were the discussions going on back in the day. Yes. Um, you know, uh, obviously we look at it uh, differently now, but... Um, uh, now, to the namesake of your book, uh, uh, Teddy Roosevelt. Um, Teddy Roosevelt, this is interesting because a little bit like Grant became very sensitive to accusations, I think as anybody would, but very sensitive to accusations of him being a big drinker, which he wasn't. I no, mean, not he, at all. He wasn't. Yeah. I mean, he enjoyed... Uh, Unlike his cousin, Franklin, yes, who, right, who right. did like to imbibe. Um there was a uh, a newspaper ar- uh, article or editorial that you know said that he was, and Teddy wasn't uh, simply happy to ignore it or to say that it was incorrect. But he sued the the newspaper man. Can you tell us that? Yeah, that's story? a great story, and it's it, it, it involves uh, it gets a little complicated in that Teddy runs as an independent against the Republicans and the Bull Moose Party and all that. And uh, so he came under fire from some of these Republican publications that used to support him when he was a Republican. And this guy had a a little itty-bitty newspaper up in the Upper Peninsula of Michigan. So really, you can imagine, it's still remote up there today, so you can imagine what it was like at the turn of the century. But Teddy gets sick of it, decides to sue the guy, and, and goes up there with a powerful lawyer from Detroit, I think, or Chicago, I forget which, and defends himself and testifies, and he brings in witnesses that claim, you know, that they've never seen Roosevelt have more than a little white wine at lunch and occasionally a mint julep when he plays tennis. And uh, Teddy wins the case, and he could have ruined the guy, and he settles for, like, five cents and the, the the journalists go you know colonel roosevelt why why would you just settle for five cents and he's he said because that's the cost of a good newspaper this guy's <laughs> newspaper sold for two or three cents right, right so it was all about uh saving face and and defending his honor more than to uh punish the other guy the surprising thing about fdr and i think you you even pointed out that you found it surprising not that he was a drinker but uh, he enjoyed all sorts of drinks, um, from you know a rum swizzle to a poker game that you or I might find themselves in and drinking a few beers. Yeah, I was sort of surprised. You know, I before I delved into the book and the research, I always assumed that I knew that FDR liked to make cocktails and was notoriously bad at it. By the way, he just dumped this and that in. Right. And, uh, his, they, they weren't they weren't handcrafted like the drinks you and I are enjoying right now. Right, but uh, he yeah when he played poker he liked to drink beer. It was like he was sort of one of the working class blue collar guys playing poker, and he would drink four or five beers, uh, you know, well past midnight playing in a poker game with uh, his cronies. And, uh, you know, we know this again from diaries and letters of the guys that he played poker with, the guys that were in, in his administration and that kind of thing. So I, I thought that was sort of fun. My favorite story about FDR, however, uh, comes from Martha Gellhorn's book. Uh, Gellhorn was one of Hemingway's wives. I always forget which one. I think the second. But uh, she was a good journalist in her own right. And but. Eleanor and FDR loved Gellhorn, so they would often invite her to the White House or to Hyde Park. And uh, she was coming down the stairs one time at the White House, and she hears giggling in the cloak closet. She thinks this is kind of strange. And she peeks in, and there's FDR with a couple people around him, and he's mixing up a batch of cocktails in the cloak closet, and in her words, giggling like a schoolboy. And here, the reason he was hiding in the closet to make this drink was that his mother was there. And when FDR's mother was there, she would sort of reluctantly let him have one. But if he tried to get a second one, she would uh, pipe up with, Franklin, don't you think you've had enough? Right. And, and she didn't care who was there. It could be right. some ambassador from a foreign country or whatever. So, so to avoid the wrath of his mother, FDR was hiding in the closet to make these cocktails. So you can imagine this guy's supposed to be the leader of the Western world and he's scared enough of, yeah, right. of his mom that he's hiding in the closet um another one a, f- a few more uh before before we close um it was interesting uh reagan like a lot of politicians understood the photo op 
And as we'll see more and more in the coming months that everybody uh, goes and, and gets their uh, whatever sort of food at the Iowa State Fair to show that they're, uh, you know, one with the Iowans. Um, right. uh, Reagan knew how to take a picture with a beer, but he wasn't a drinker. He, in fact, had... Uh, I believe his father or stepfather. Yeah, his father was an alcoholic. Father was yeah. an alcoholic. So Reagan was very uh, wary of alcohol with reason, but he is what I call a master of the alcohol photo op. Reagan would often go out on St. Patrick's Day and get photographed with a mug of Guinness, <laughs> and and he'd have two or three sips at a Guinness. He didn't care for it and put it down, and then he'd he'd order a Smittix, which is a a lighter. Irish beer, sure, yeah. and he'd drink maybe half of that. He wouldn't even finish the Smittics, and that would be it. But the idea was to be photographed in an Irish pub on St. Patrick's Day. He was very proud of his Irish-American roots, and he wanted to connect with you know, the Irish-Americans, always a very powerful political force. Sure. So he wanted to be, to, and he also used to show, hey, I'm one of the working guys, you know, I'm, I can identify with the blue collar guy. I'm out having a beer. And so it was all part of that uh, and, and quite effective, frankly. Uh, JFK wasn't as big a drinker as I think some people would assume, correct? He- right. I mean, JFK was, uh, you know, to be perfectly honest, probably more interested in having his female companions. Sure consume alcohol <laughs> yeah so uh yeah jfk uh you know, occasionally a heineken occasionally a little bit of scotch but the interesting thing about kennedy is i always maintain without alcohol he may have not ever been president because joe kennedy made a ton of money in alcohol and and rolled a lot of that money into his son's sure, uh, yeah. presidential campaign including i think uh you know he paid somebody $100,000 to get his picture on the front of life or look, I forget which one, uh, that kind of thing. And, and Joe Kennedy made so much money in alcohol and then, and then parlayed that into films and other things that, uh, you know, you could make the argument that the, the Kennedy wealth, uh, at least a cornerstone of it, had to do with booze. Harry Truman. I love Harry Truman. Like, people often ask me, you know, who would you like to have a drink with? And Truman's certainly in the top three. I mean, Jefferson, because you could you can imagine having a glass of great French wine. Jefferson with, loved wine. With yeah. Jefferson and pontificating in a library, that would be great. But Harry Truman would get up in the morning, and he would take a two-mile walk, and then he'd get a rub down, and then he'd have a couple ounces of bourbon, <laughs> you know, before breakfast, which blows my mind that he did that. But I, I think it was more of a medicinal thing. Like it's probably some old aunt or somebody he told him. He wasn't getting hammered in the morning. No, he but the, yeah, I mean, he did like little, his bourbon and okay. he would drink later on. And, and, <laughs> and actually, one of my favorite stories that involves him and Kennedy is um, Truman, when JFK ran, was, was sort of uh, hesitant to support JFK. He was slow to do it. He eventually did. But the reporters sort of caught on and they, they said... Uh, you know, Mr. Truman, why won't you support JFK? Is it because he's a Catholic? If you remember, that was a big controversy sure. at the time. We were going to have our first Catholic president if Kennedy won. And there was this 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 uh, story that the Pope was going to control the U.S. through Kennedy because he was a Catholic, which, of course, was nonsense. But uh, and Truman smiled at the reporters and said, it's not the Pope it's the pop and he hated <laughs> right. he hated joe kennedy and he was scared that joe kennedy was going to control his son and, and essentially be president through his son but joe kennedy in the meantime had a massive stroke and could could hardly talk let alone uh, control anybody but uh truman was scared of that and 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 truman hated joe kennedy to the point that once uh, reporters during a poker game on a train somewhere, the reporters used to travel with the presidents on the same train. They'd have their own car and they'd sit back there and drink and smoke and play cards in between stops. And Truman would sometimes sit in and play cards with them. And one day he was walking by and he didn't have time to play cards, but they said, hey, just have a drink with us. You want a scotch? And he goes, nah, I don't want to, I don't want a scotch. And they're like, oh, okay, well, how about a bourbon? He goes, oh, yeah, I love bourbon. Sat down, had a bourbon. And somebody goes, oh, you don't like scotch, Mr. President? He goes, every time you drink a scotch, you put another quarter in Joe Kennedy's pocket. <laughs> and that's how much he hated Joe Kennedy. Uh, and we'll finish with 
the first president, um, George Washington. Yeah, Washington, I, you know, that was another sort of an adventure because I didn't, I didn't realize at the time that they, they made whiskey at Mount Vernon and, and became quite profitable at one point where they had five stills cranking out whiskey at Mount Vernon. They've since recreated the still down there. I haven't been to it. But I know people that have, and it's uh, you know very close to the the manor house, uh, maybe within a mile, I guess, mile or two, and they would sell it off the backs of wagons in Old Town Alexandria, and it became quite profitable. And interestingly, it, it occurs a couple years after Washington puts down the whiskey rebellion in, uh, right. in Western PA, and then yeah. goes into the whiskey business himself. But because these guys were so prolific with their diaries and letters, we know exactly when Washington decided to go into the uh, whiskey business because he wrote a letter to a friend and said, uh, my overseer, Mr. Anderson, says I can find my account in it. And by that he meant make money. And what kind of drinker was he? Very eclectic. Washington, he loved this uh, this porter beer that was made in Philadelphia. There was a British guy that knew how to make uh, this great porter his name was John Hare. So we have again, we have letters that Washington's writing to friends in Philadelphia saying, if Mr. Hare has made any of his exquisite porter, could he please send several gross to Mount Vernon? Because uh, next week there'll be a great need for it. So we know from his letters that he loved this dark beer that this British guy made. So he would drink that. He would drink brandy. He would drink champagne. And I always argued that he wasn't a big whiskey drinker that I can find, although he obviously didn't mind selling it for profit. Sure. Uh, but I always maintain that alcohol uh, improved Washington, and it's one of the few presidents that I would say that about. Reagan would be another. Uh, but in Washington's case, the knock against him always was that he was cold and forbidding Formal, right? until of, people got yeah. to know him and uh, didn't smile much. That may, may have been because his teeth were bad, but... Uh, but we, again, from diaries and letters of visitors to Mount Vernon, we know that once General Washington had a couple champagnes, he became quite gregarious and outgoing and, and much more uh, friendly. And he also, had, a, like Lincoln, had a great sense of humor about alcohol. Like he named his, his uh, foxhounds drunkard and drooler. And they, they were all, all his foxhounds had names that related in some way to alcohol, tipsy, that kind of thing. Well, with that, uh, I want to thank Mark. Thank you so much for you traveled all the way up here to Albany, and I appreciate that. And we haven't even gotten to half of this stuff. So please check out Mark's books, Muskets and Applejack, Spirits, Soldiers in the Civil War, and his other book, Mint Juleps with Teddy Roosevelt. Uh, There's a few recipes in that book. Uh, The full title, Mint Juleps with Teddy Roosevelt, The Complete History of Presidential Drinking. I also want to thank the Albany Distilling Company. Um, I'm ashamed to admit this is my first time here, but it certainly won't be my last. Um, there's a number a cool of, place. of great cocktails that you can get. Uh, a very, very cool location, so please check that out. And once again, Mark Will Weber, thank you very much. Well, thanks, Nick. It's great to actually sit down with somebody that's read the books thoroughly. And, <laughs> I appreciate and, that. And can can really talk to some of the more subtle points of the of the topic and usually when alcohol and history collide interesting things happen there's no doubt about that (laughs) and, and, and you can read all about it in mark's books thank you mark